like Isaiah said, Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for spending Christmas Eve with us here at Grace. Um, I like that part of that song where it talked about dulled senses and veiled hearts beginning to come alive and feel again and sense again, because that kind of ties in with uh, where I want to take us in the Christmas message this morning. Uh, I have a title for the Christmas message today. The title of this year's Christmas message is meh. You know the word meh? Did any of you use that word? The word meh became part of our vocabulary in the mid-90s. And if you look up the word meh in the dictionary, and you can actually find the word meh in the dictionary, if you look this word up in the dictionary, you see that, that it means a couple of things as an uh, exclamation, meh, expresses a lack of interest or a lack of enthusiasm. So you could use it in a sentence to say, meh, I'm not impressed yet. <laughs> As an adjective, the word meh means uninspiring or unimpressive. So you could use it in a sentence like, Nicolas Cage movies are usually meh. <laughs> It means indifference, and it's used when one simply does not care. So, meh is kind of a verbal shrug. Meh. <laughs> um, the, the word became popular uh, in the mid-90s with The Simpsons. There was a TV show where Homer was trying to get Bart and Lisa to stop watching television all day, and he wanted them to go outside and go on a day trip with him, and as he's pestering them to get away from the, the tube and, and let's go outside, they both, without looking up from the TV, they both go, meh, and they continue watching. Well, he persists, and he's kind of nagging them, and hey, you don't need to stay inside all day. Let's go outside, and finally, Lisa snaps at him. We said meh, M-E-H, meh. <laughs> Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, when I was in Kenya, my host took me to see the Rift Valley. The Rift Valley is a, a, a humongous uh, valley with, covered with mountains on either side that's considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It stretches from the bottom part of Kenya, uh, Kenya, which is the bottom part of Africa, and it stretches all the way across the continent of As Africa into Israel. It's, it's spectacular. And, and so it was a treat for them to take me to see the Rift Valley. I, I arrived in Africa late on Saturday night. I spoke a couple of times the next morning. And then that evening, Sunday night, the college classes began, and I taught Sunday night through about noon on Friday. So at noon on Friday was kind of the break, and they were going to, just as a treat and a recovery time, they took me to a, a really nice resort called Brackenhurst. But to get to Brackenhurst, we got to drive along the Rift Valley. And they told me what this was like, and I was so excited. And so all week long, leading up to Friday, I kept asking the pastors in the school, hey, tell me about the Rift Valley. And what, what is it like? I've heard it's one of the seven wonders of the world. Am I going to see animals? I just, I couldn't wait. And they kept saying, oh, it's pretty amazing. And yeah, I'm sure you'll see animals. And so I was so excited. And we finally get to Friday. We finish the class. We load up and we, we go on this kind of cross-country trip where I got to see part of the country. We came up to a lookout point over the Rift Valley and we parked the car. And, and I got up and I walked to the lookout and I, I, I lifted up my gaze and I looked at it and I kind of felt 
meh. After all of that hype and all of that buildup, I, I was just kind of unimpressed. I got a picture of it for you. And it, it's, it's nice. I mean, it's very beautiful. And, and, and I, as I look at it, I could see, you know, as far as I can see, this valley just stretches. But for some reason, I was just kind of unmoved. I just wasn't terribly impressed. I, I kind of felt an internal shrug when I looked at it. And then I started to feel guilty. Because I thought, wait a second, I am in Africa, and I'm looking at the Rift Valley, one of the seven wonders of the world, and my response is, meh. So then I tried to figure out why I would respond that way, and I thought, you know, maybe it's because I'm tired. International travel is exhausting. And then I thought, well, maybe it's not that I'm tired. Maybe it's because of where I live. I mean, come on, we have some gorgeous places in Southern California, if traffic is, is mild, we can get to Laguna Beach in about 40 minutes from here. There are not many places in the world more beautiful than Laguna Beach. Uh, Madeline has a, an Instagram feed that she likes to follow on the most beautiful places in the world. So I've seen tons of these pictures of this staggering scenery. Uh, our television has a screensaver app that cycles through the most exotic places in the world. It, it, it's amazing. In person, I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've been to Europe. In fact, I live with Jessica Jackson. I, I live with Madeline and Amber, so I thought maybe I've just become inoculated to beauty. Or maybe I, I've lost some of my capacity for wonder as I've aged. It's kind of ironic that I would see the Rift Valley and feel strangely unmoved because just a couple of days earlier in our class with the pastors, I handed out to all of the pastors a, a copy of a Knight's Code of Honor. I've given these out at Ziklag. Um, we give them out fairly often here. Um, I, we pass them out at our men's retreat. In fact, at our last men's retreat, we had a pretty cool moment. We had a knighting ceremony where we took the the broadsword that my dad bought me a few years ago, and we knighted one another. In fact, I have a picture here of um, this Pastor Dennis Bachman knighting Patrick Sanchez. It was a, it's a pretty special moment up at Men's Retreat. But let me read a couple of these uh, vows from a knight's code of honor. This is an actual code of honor from the Middle Ages. I'll just read a few of them. Uh, these knights would vow to never do outrage or murder, always to flee treason, to by no means be cruel, but to give mercy unto him who asks for mercy. To always do ladies, gentlewomen, and widows succor, which means give them assistance or defense or help. Um, not to take up battles and wrongful quarrels or for love of worldly goods. To fight for the safety of one's country. To give one's life for one's country. To seek nothing before honor. To practice religion most diligently. To grant hospitality to anyone, each according to his ability. And then these last three are my favorites. To never lay down arms. Never to lose faith for any reason. And then here it is. To seek after wonders. I love that. And I had just urged these pastors, let's never lose our sense of wonder. Let's never get dull or familiar or meh with God and his creation and what he's doing in the world. And then I'm standing in this place and I realize I'm a lot like Zechariah from Luke chapter one in the Christmas story. Why don't you turn in your Bibles, if you can see in the dark, to Luke chapter one. 
And I want to look at the two encounters in the Christmas story that happen with the angel Gabriel. The Bible mentions thousands and thousands of angels. Only two of them are mentioned by name. We have Michael, the archangel, and Gabriel, who was sent to two different people with a spectacular message. Gabriel was sent to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and he was sent to Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. And this story intrigues me because the same angel brings supernatural announcements about the birth of John the Baptist. He brings supernatural announcement about the birth of Jesus Christ. So it's a very similar message from the same angel and Zechariah and Mary respond almost identically. Their response is almost exactly the same, except one of them, Zechariah, was rebuked. And Mary, who responds almost exactly the same, is blessed. So there was a subtle difference between the response uh, to the angel in these two people. Let's walk through this together here on Christmas Eve morning because I see too much of Zechariah in me at this stage of my life. And standing overlooking the Rift Valley, I realize something needs to change. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, that phrase, they were both very old, puts some finality into their story. You know, there's one kind of pain that we experience when we're in the middle of a process and it doesn't seem to be working. There's one kind of pain that we experience when we're trying to conceive, but it isn't happening yet. That's a very real pain. But it's a very different kind of pain when we move from it's not happening yet to it's not going to happen. There's the pain of process, and then there's the pain of finality. And as bad as the pain of process is, finality brings a whole different level of, of sorrow and weight to the person. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, if I were Zechariah, and the angel Gabriel appeared to me at my job, I think once I got over my shock of having an angel show up at work, and I think once I got over my fear of trying to figure out, well, what in the world does this mean that, that heaven has come down and I'm seeing something supernatural, I think my cynical side might kick in. And I think once I got past all of the oohs and ahs of the moment, I think there's a part of me that might be like, seriously? You're coming to me now. You're bringing the word of having a baby today. Where were you 30 years ago? 
See, we prayed every single day for a baby for 20 years. We needed you 30 years ago. In fact, uh, Elizabeth has gotten so along in years, we stopped praying 10 years ago. We don't need this word today. We needed this word decades ago. But the angel continued, this son of yours, Zechariah, he's going to be a joy. He's going to be a delight to many, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Hey, uh, young people, maybe everybody here who's like maybe college age on down, maybe if you're visiting from New York and you're home from college on down today, can I just tell you something? The number one prayer, the number one ache that we older people have for you is that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't need you to be perfect. We don't need you to be just like us, but we want you to experience God on the inside of you because it changes everything. It makes all the difference. It reorients your world. It answers your questions. It connects you to purpose. It connects you to life. And this was incredible. Think about this. The number one prayer that any parent has for their child is that they would be filled with the Spirit. And when the angel came to Zechariah, the angel says, hey, guess what? Not only is God going to give you a son, but when God gives you this son, all of the prayers that you're going to pray for this son are going to come pre-answered. Your, your ache will be that John will be filled with the Spirit. Well, guess what? He's going to come into the world filled with the Spirit. What a promise. This is a remarkable moment. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Oh, Gabriel's not going to like this response. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. Now that's, that's quite a credential. <laughs> that's quite a response. I think that just kind of strikes fear in your heart. I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. The name Gabriel incidentally means God is my hero. And that makes sense because you can't stand in the presence of God for very long without him becoming your hero. This, this moment kind of reminds me of the book of John when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And do you remember when Judas came to betray him? According to John's version, uh, he leads a group of soldiers to capture Jesus, but it's dark. And they're not sure exactly which one is Jesus. And so they're looking for him. And Jesus steps out and he says, what, what are you doing? Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then the scripture says that Jesus said to them, I am he. And when he said, I am he, the Bible tells us that they, they drew back and they collapsed to the ground. The force of his personality knocked them off their feet. Kind of like in Lord of the Rings. You know, we have those moments when you get just a peek at the true strength and power inside Gandalf. Or Frodo gets just a glimpse of, of who Galadriel really is. That's what this moment is like. You're questioning me? I'm Gabriel, and I came from the presence of God. And 
I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, and now you will be silent. You're going to be mute and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, the words did come true at the appointed time. I like that. I like the fact that Zechariah's cynicism did not keep the miracle from happening. It wasn't hung on Zechariah's ability to say yes to God. But you know what happened? This response kept Zechariah from being able to enter into the process fully. He was mute until John was born. So when Elizabeth finally conceived, all he could do was be like. <laughs> and when she was showing and the baby was kicking, he was just, he, he couldn't say anything. He couldn't enter in and express the joy of the moment. So what happened here? What was, what was different? Let's contrast this with Mary and her response with Gabriel. So drop down to verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so Zechariah is six months into his muteness, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, which incidentally, the name Jesus means salvation. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And then in verse 34, Mary said, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Uh-oh. This is the same thing Zechariah said. Zechariah said, how can I know this? Since I'm old and my wife is well along in years. He was a smart man. That was a polite way of saying, my wife is old. But he didn't say that exactly. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? So surely Mary is about to be struck mute. Surely she's about to be silenced because of this questioning of the word of the Lord. So in verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. And other translations handle that phrase by saying, nothing shall be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So what was the difference? Same angel, very similar message, identical response. One is struck mute. The other bursts into the Magnificat. Down in verse um, 46, we have what's called Mary's Magnificat. We call her song of praise Magnificat because in the Latin version of the Bible, which was called the Vulgate, the first word of her song in the Latin is the word Magnificat. It means magnifies or glorifies. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. So Zechariah 
can't speak, Mary bursts into song. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. You know, the only real difference I think I can see between Zechariah and Mary is that Zechariah was old and disappointed. And Mary was young and hopeful. And the issue isn't old versus young. I've known old people that were filled with a childlike wonder, and I've known young people who are already burned out in their youth. The issue isn't old versus young, but Zechariah was old and disappointed. And so when the word of the Lord came to him, there was nothing in him that was able to respond. Instead of a yes, there was a meh. Prove it. I'm going to need some evidence. And in contrast to that, when the word came to Mary, she was like, wow, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. You're going to have to explain it to me. But, but if you can help me figure this out, I am all in. I wonder how we can become a little bit more like Mary. You know, uh, there are parts of the church today that venerate or exalt Mary, maybe a little more than she should be venerated. You know, the Catholic Church, for instance, not only views Mary as the mother of Jesus, the man, but as the mother of God. And I understand why the church would call her the mother of God, but it's an important distinction because Mary's not on par with God. In fact, it's interesting to me. Do you know Mary only gave one command in all of the scripture? In John 2, when Jesus was turning water into wine, Mary says to Jesus, hey, son, we're out of wine. And then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So the one command that Mary gives in scripture is follow him. Do what he said to do. But I think sometimes that... If some parts of the church um, have venerated Mary a little bit too much, maybe some of the rest of us have not venerated her quite enough. Mary received the most unbelievable word from God. There is no human who ever lived who received the kind of an encounter that Mary received. Not Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Not Moses, the rescuer of the Jewish people. Not David, the greatest king of Jewish history. No one. And when this fantastic, staggering, absolutely unbelievable word came to Mary, her response was wonder and obedience and awe. I did a a little series on Mary's story a few years ago at Christmas, and I pointed out how Mary shows us the pattern that God uses often to work in our lives. There were four thoughts. Number one, The word of the Lord comes to us like it came to Mary. And then number two, the word of the Lord begins to grow or form or mature inside us like it did when Mary was carrying Jesus. And eventually, number three, the word of the Lord gets released through us until number four, the word of the Lord changes the situation in life around us. But it all begins with a wonder-laced faith. I think that God chose Mary because he knew that her response to the incredible would be, wow, this is crazy and I don't get it, but but I'm yours. And when I think about Zechariah, so when I think about me, I think I can see there's a few reasons why we lose our wonder. Number one, I think we lose our wonder when we just get too disappointed. 
I think disappointment is the opposite of wonder. And when you and I get too disappointed in life, number two, we begin to confuse our verb tenses. It's one thing to say, God hasn't done this for me yet, but it's different to say, God will never do this for me. No, God had not healed Elizabeth yet, but that didn't mean that he never would heal Elizabeth. We get our verb tenses confused. We think a present struggle is a permanent reality when it's not. And when our souls get so soaked in disappointment that we begin to confuse our verb tenses, then number three, we begin to lose um, the element of surprise. In fact, let me read to you uh, the definition of wonder from the dictionary. Wonder is a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something that's beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. I believe, Grace, that God wants to surprise you this year. In fact, listen to a verse from Isaiah 29, verse 14. It'll be up on the screen. In Isaiah 29, 14, God is speaking to a people who is disappointed, they're disillusioned, and consequently, they've become a little bit cynical. And so God says to them, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. When that happens this year, I hope that we have eyes to see it. I hope that our hearts won't be so drenched with disappointment that we're not able to see it. I hope our verb tenses won't be so confused that we're just not able to believe that there could be a better future or there could be a change or there could be a a new path or a new relationship or a new breakthrough for us. There's more for you. Christmas is a reminder that there's more. In the middle of darkness, in the middle of desolation, there's life, there's hope, there's new beginnings. uh, My dad wrote a poem once when he was very young, He wrote this on an Easter morning. And the first line of this poem says, wordless wonder, you need not speak. Your message thunders to those who seek. I think I want to seek after wonder this year. I think I want to open up myself to God more than I did in 2017. I think I want to take more risks this year. I think I want to try and savor every individual moment of life. You remember that scientists used to think that light beams were one continuous wave of light. And then they discovered that a light beam is not one continuous thing. It's a whole bunch of little things, photons. It's a beam of light is made up of individual particles of light. And I want to enjoy every individual piece of life this year. I don't want my disappointment. I don't want my sin to create a meh, response in me. And that's the fruit of disappointment. And it's the fruit of sin. And it's the fruit of disengaging from the presence of God and the wonder of God. Do you know what I want this year? I want to be more in awe of you. Do you know the very fact that you're here today is a miraculous story. And if I knew every detail of the story of your life that brought you here today, I wouldn't be able to stand up. I would be awed by who you are and what God did in you. In fact, C.S. Lewis cautioned us against getting too familiar in our relationships. You know, I like all of the personality handles and Myers-Briggs, and our staff just went through the Enneagram test, and so I like all of that. But I don't want to get you just 
all categorized and figured out and neatly packaged somewhere in my understanding. C.S. Lewis said, you and I have never met a mere mortal. You're not mere mortals today. You're daughters. You're sons of God. And there is awe and hope and wonder and life in your future. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ, born to us through the Virgin Mary at the advent that we celebrate at Christmas time. 